We have been working our way through this Lenten season uh, through core stories of the Bible. We did five stories from the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, and now today we turn to the New Testament and we'll have four stories uh, about uh, events in the life of Jesus. And the first for today is really kind of all-encompassing. It is a story from Luke 4, where we hear Jesus' own understanding of his mission and see the results of what happens when people hear that. That is a kind of microcosm for his life, death, and resurrection. This passage comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, verses 13 through 30. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, it can be found in the New Testament on pages 57 and 58. As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our minds and hearts and souls to hear and be touched by your sacred word and to respond by doing your call and your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things we've heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in the time in Israel, in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever heard of Samuel Pierpont Langley? 
In the early 1900s, Langley was the person everyone believed would invent a way for human beings to fly. He was given $50,000 by the War Department, an extraordinary sum at the time, to figure out how to build a flying machine. He had connections, positions at Harvard and the Smithsonian, so he knew and recruited the best minds of the day to help in the task. The New York Times was so sure he was going to figure this out that they had a reporter following him around to get real-time updates on his progress. Everyone was rooting for Samuel Pierpont Langley. A few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, two brothers were also trying to figure out how to fly. They didn't have any of Langley's resources. They didn't have college educations or connections. They funded their experiments with proceeds from their bike shop. No reporters knew who they were, much less followed them around. But Orville and Wilbur Wright were driven by a cause, a purpose, a belief. They knew if they could create a machine that would enable human beings to fly, it would change the world. The Wright brothers knew their why. Samuel Pierpont Langley didn't have the same clarity regarding his why. He wanted to be rich and famous, and he figured he could accomplish that by inventing the first flying machine. When the Wright brothers finally took flight in December 1903, Langley immediately quit trying. He wasn't going to be the first, which meant his endeavor wouldn't make him rich or famous, and so he quit. The Wright brothers knew their why. Langley did not. In today's passage from Luke, Jesus announces his why. After his baptism and 40 days of temptation, Jesus is ready to answer God's call and claim on his life. He goes on an inaugural teaching and healing tour and ends up in Nazareth, his hometown, in the synagogue he grew up in. And he stands up to read the scroll, the scripture of the day. He's handed the book of Isaiah. And he knows just the passage he wants to share, the one that reveals his why. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' why. And by announcing his why in his home synagogue, Jesus is making it clear that the God who has anointed and called him is the same God who called Abraham and Sarah, the same God who bested Pharaoh and freed the Hebrew slaves, the same God who gave the people the Ten Commandments, brought them into the Promised Land, and anointed David to be their king. Jesus has been anointed by that very same God he learned about in that very synagogue. The God whose values and actions were revealed to us in these core stories we heard the past five weeks. And the God of the prophets, like Isaiah, who demand mercy and justice for those suffering from oppression. Jesus begins with why. One of my mentors, uh, Mark Ramsey, our parish associate, has drilled into me that when it comes to leadership, 
authority and responsibility are inseparable. If you have the privilege of claiming authority, whether it's as the CEO of a company, an elder in a church, or the chair of a committee, you cannot separate your authority and the privileges it brings from your responsibility to do the work the role requires. Sometimes we'd prefer to take responsibility, to do the work, complete the task, but we don't want the authority that comes with it. Just tell me what to do, don't put me in charge, we might say. Or we want the benefits of authority, the title, the respect, the reputation, without having to take responsibility for the work that needs to be done and for the mistakes we might make along the way. But you cannot have one without the other. Authority and responsibility go hand in hand. Jesus seems to know this. He announces that God has anointed him, and that's a big deal because an anointing confers a special kind of authority. Remember last week when David was anointed by Samuel to become the next king? In Hebrew, the word anoint is the root of the word Messiah. So when the prophets and people of Israel looked for the day when the Messiah would come and liberate them from oppression and struggle, they were talking about someone anointed by God. With his words, Jesus claims authority. But he knows that with that authority comes responsibility. Like David, Jesus has been anointed not to receive respect and accolades, but for a purpose, to extend mercy to those suffering by healing and liberating them and by changing the circumstances that have created such oppression. This was the whole point of what Jesus calls the year of the Lord's favor. It refers to the year of Jubilee, when the people would be freed from their debts and from all kinds of bondage. This is Jesus' why, and it means he's got a lot of work to do. During the first phone call I ever had with Bill Garrison, the chair of the pastor nominating committee that called me here, Bill told me about FPC's involvement with RISC, which stands for Richmonders Involved in Strengthening Our Communities. Although I wasn't familiar with the organization, Bill made it clear that RISC was an important way FPC lives out our why, our purpose and calling to care for our community. Early on, I met with our RISC team leaders, Jim and Sally and Peggy, and I heard from them how this work has challenged and inspired them and how it helps with the frustration and anger we so often feel in the face of issues that just seem entrenched, like the effectiveness of public education, inequality in healthcare, lack of affordable housing, and the persistent devastation of gun violence. A couple of years ago, I started attending risk meetings and learning more about their organizing process. It begins each year by holding small group meetings, listening sessions, with people who attend faith communities all over the city, people of different religions and denominations, different backgrounds and experiences. But when we start talking about what keeps us up at night, 
and the issues we and our loved ones are struggling with, it's amazing how much we have in common. From these listening conversations, Risk chooses issues to work on and then goes into a research phase where steering committees take deep dives into the issues. Over many months, the committees do research, meet with experts, and learn about the ways other communities have successfully moved the needle on the same problems. It's only after all that work that RISC begins working with public officials to understand their approach and to advocate for specific solutions. Finally, one evening each year, RISC leverages the power of organized people by inviting members of each of its congregations and our public officials to come together and hear about these solutions. In this meeting, RISC seeks to hold our elected officials accountable to use both their authority and their responsibility to help the people they are elected to serve. This is the Nehemiah action we've been talking so much about the last few weeks, and it's named for the biblical book of Nehemiah, in which a large group of people come together to demand justice from their leaders. In all of this, RISC shows itself to be an organization that knows its why, to do justice as it is defined in the Bible. And those involved with RISC know that pursuing justice brings tension, because tension is always the precursor to change. In Jason Brown's weekly email to the choir this week, and if you don't get these, I bet he'd let you get them, even if you're not in the choir, because they're really good. This week he wrote, as a conductor, I'm always on the lookout for dissonance in music, those moments of silence, tension, or suspense that beg for resolution, because these are the moments that propel music forward and bring the music to cadences that allow us to breathe. Imagine, if you will, a performance of the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah that ends before that final, almost cathartic exclamation of Hallelujah! Talk about a cliffhanger if we didn't hear that. In the same way, tension and suspense propel life forward. He continues, in life, tension though uncomfortable and sometimes painful, is necessary for the same reason it exists in music. Tension affords inspiration, purpose, and whatever motivation is needed to move us toward a harmonious resolution, a resolution that is representative of the peace of Christ and the holy harmony his coming makes in us. There is no better definition of God's justice than the scroll Jesus read the day he stood up in the synagogue of his childhood. Isaiah's call to God's people to proclaim release to the captives, sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. With these words, Jesus claims his authority and his responsibility. And at first, the people who hear it are amazed and pleasantly surprised at how accomplished Joseph's son has become. 
Then Jesus goes on to bring up two other biblical stories, the ones about the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, stories that show God's love and justice extended beyond Israel to foreigners and even enemies of God's people. The immediate result of this expansive view of justice is tension, tension that quickly becomes violent. Anytime we get clear about our why, anytime we claim our authority and take responsibility for doing mercy and seeking justice, anytime we advocate with and for the oppressed, there will be tension. And that is good news because history shows us that nonviolent tension is the very thing that creates the conditions for change. People don't change when we are comfortable. And people in power often need to be reminded that authority and responsibility go together. I understand that one of our interim pastors used to remind us that we are the first Presbyterian church in the capital city of the Commonwealth of Virginia. To me, that means we have the authority that comes not only with our 212-year history, but also with our location, our resources, and the power held by our members in our community. This authority is not for us to hold on to for ourselves. It is for us to give away just as Jesus gives himself away to fulfill the responsibilities that came with his authority, his calling. We give ourselves away by fulfilling our responsibility, which involves the hard and persistent work of seeking justice for all people. We do this because we have received the gospel, good news of great joy for all people, And having received it, we are compelled to give it away, to share that good news by showing up and standing up with our neighbors, by leveraging our power and our voices with and for those demanding mercy and justice. This is our why. Of course, the temptation is always to say that now is not the time We should wait until things are more settled or more clear. Jesus anticipates this response, and standing in that synagogue in front of people who knew him as a drooling baby and a sullen teenager, he tells them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, not next year, today. The work of doing God's mercy and justice cannot wait. It's our why. Good news of great joy for all people. This is our calling, our authority, and our responsibility. Today and all the days to come, may we work to fulfill it. Amen.